Good morning. All right. This sermon has been a long time coming, all right? There is a sense in which you could say that I have been working on this sermon for the past 15 years. Um, and this is what I mean by that. Um, have you ever believed a new thing, like a thing that you didn't believe before, um, and you believed that new thing, like it was so compelling that you definitely believed it, but it was so new that you were not prepared to explain it or defend it? Have you been in that situation? You changed your mind about something, and you're like, this is the thing I believe, I know that for sure, but you almost like, I don't know if I'm gonna tell anybody I believe this, because if they say, what about this, what about this, what about this, I'm gonna go, I don't know, I don't know all the whatabouts, I just know I believe it. So that is what this thing is for me. There was a point, I, I grew up believing a particular way, um, like religiously, and then I changed my mind about one of the things that I you know, believed when I was a you know, kid, and even in my early, like kind of the first half of my life. Um, I grew up one way and then I changed my mind about something in my 20s. And now that I've changed my mind about it, I will let you know, like it has certainly informed my preaching over the years. Uh, but I've never felt quite confident enough to do a whole sermon on it um, until now. And what has happened is in the past 15 years, I have come across Bible verse after Bible verse after Bible verse that confirms my new belief, which isn't very new anymore because I believed it for 15 years now. But this thing that I'm calling the new belief that was different than what I grew up with, um, I've come across verse after verse after verse that confirms it in such a way that I think I am now ready to take this thing that I have referred to, like here and there um, in teachings and in sermons, and just collect up all the verses and preach them all at once. So before I tell you what my new belief is, let me tell you what my old belief was, okay? Um, and the, my, my old views would have been uh, probably the source of them would have been a whole bunch of different things growing up. And this is, these are all religious kind of views about God and afterlife and stuff. Um, the way that I came to believe what I originally believed probably had a lot to do with things my mom taught me, things that I heard Sunday school teachers you know, say, things that I learned in the Christian school that I went to um, you know, when I was growing up, uh, things I'd watched on TV, cartoons that I'd watched, books that I'd read, conversations that I had witnessed or been involved in. And all that kind of came together, and I came to this belief. So here's kind of the gist of it. When you die, your body goes into the ground forever, never to return. But you don't stop existing. You have a spirit or a soul or a ghost, um, that whatever you call it, that is released from your body at the moment of death, and it goes to one of two spiritual places, heaven or hell. And your ghost remains there for all of eternity. And so the gospel was presented to me and like my understanding of it when I was younger was pretty close to this. Like the, the gospel was, you are a sinner. Uh, the wages of sin is death. So your body is gonna die and it's gonna stay dead. That's not getting undone. However, there is a spiritual you that will go on. And it's hard to imagine what spiritual you is like, but I had watched TV. And in fact, when I was a kid, there, were, there was a cartoon that had a character in it called Sylvester the Cat. And he often went to heaven and hell. Do you remember that? Yeah, he went to heaven and hell like all the time, depending on what he did in that episode. And when, when you saw Sylvester in hell or when you saw Sylvester in heaven, he looked a lot like the way he did in his normal life, just like sort of see-through. Do you remember that? Like he looked like in regular world, he looked like a solid figure, but if he went to heaven or hell, he looked a little see-through. And so I guess I pictured that there's this see-through version of me that will go on forever. And so the call of the gospel seemed to me to be something like this, believe in Jesus. In fact, the way it was phrased was ask Jesus into your heart. Um, and if you ask Jesus into your heart, you'll get forgiveness of sins. And that forgiveness of sins will be the difference 
between whether your ghost goes, spends eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. And I will admit, back then, I was not excited about either option. Hell sounded awful because of the flames. And heaven didn't sound great either. Heaven to me sounded um, weird. It sounded, I just, it's, it's unfamiliar in the sense of it's hard to imagine what like disembodied, non-bodily living would be like in, a, in a, some sort of spiritual world. Um, the descriptions of heaven that I re- heard when I was a kid were things like pearly gates and golden streets, neither of which interested me then or now. Um, and both of which are strangely physical, considering this was supposed to be some spiritual world that my ghost went to. And at times, heaven was described as if it were an eternal church service, okay? You guys all went to the same Sunday school classes? Okay, yeah. So it's, just, it's church forever, we're constantly singing. And there was a time where I was with my mom and we were in Publix and she was talking to this guy who she thought was a really good Christian and I was just listening to their conversation. So I was probably um, eight, nine, 10 years old, somewhere around there. And when you're eight or 10 years old and your mom's going grocery shopping, what do you do? Not a lot, you just like go along, right? So she's pushing the cart and there I am. And then she has this conversation with another adult and I'm just standing there being the child and the two adults are talking and I'm just listening to them talk. And my mom said something to this guy that must have indicated, like I, I could tell that she thought he was a really good Christian. She made some comment like, oh, when you get to heaven, your mansion's gonna be really big or, or you're gonna be really high ranked up, something like that. And he said back to her, no, 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 the ceilings in heaven are only four feet high and we will be bowing down and worshiping Jesus all, you know, forever. And you know, I, I suppose I was standing there going like, I hope that's not true. <laughs> Oh, that sounds cramped, right? I mean, could you imagine four, four feet ceiling? I'm in this position for like 400 billion years. Like, I'm already not excited about heaven and this guy is not helping. So um, I'd never heard any other like Sunday school teacher ever mention the four foot ceiling rule ever again after that. So I just assumed that it was like a personal belief of that guy. But nonetheless, I distinctly remember thinking that earth sounded better than heaven, even if heaven was better than hell. Like I could, I really like, as a, I can remember like ranking them and thinking like out of the three options, heaven, earth, hell, I'd rather be in earth. That's for sure. Now, if I'm going to die and I have to go to one of the other two options, then sure, certainly like the, the see-through cloud place over the burning place. Of course, yes, heaven over hell, but earth over either one of them. Um, now, I no longer believe that. Heaven is much more exciting to me now. And the funny thing is, these beliefs that I had, you know, I went to a church at the time, and the church that I attended at the time didn't actually believe all that stuff that I just said to you. Some of it, they, some of what I just described, they believed, but not all of it. Um, and I would say, I even still believe some of what I just described, but not all of it. Um, there are some differences that are worth noting, and I hope that they are as helpful to you as they are to me. So let me start off with a thumbnail sketch of my new view, okay? First of all, I still believe all the stuff about sin and needing forgiveness from God and going to heaven and hell. I just think that that is an incomplete description. There is more to it than that. That's true, but there's more to it than that. So if I, I still, like if somebody today in this room were to die, okay, I do believe that your spirit or your soul would go to heaven or hell, just like I was told as a kid. But I no longer believe that Christians will exist in a disembodied state in a spiritual realm for all of eternity. I believe that Jesus Christ is coming back He is coming back here. And that he is essentially going to bring heaven here. He is going to renew the earth. He is going to bring dead people back to life. 
bodily. And we, the followers of Jesus, will physically live with God in a physical world with no bad things in it. Maybe similar to the world that Adam and Eve lived in but before there was sin, but even better. So some of you might be going, yep, that's what I think too. And others of you are going, I've never heard this in my life. And so let me just tell you, let me show you that what I'm telling you right now is something that is assumed all over the New Testament. So let's just go to place after place. Let's start with Acts 24. Acts 24 is a great little passage. Uh, Paul has been arrested for the, I don't know what time, um, but Paul goes around telling people about Jesus and he, then he gets arrested and, um, for telling people about Jesus, essentially. And so that's what's happening right now. So the thing I'm about to read to you is right in the middle of a, a court case where he is making his defense. And so let me just read it to you. Acts 24, starting in verse 10. When the governor motioned to him to speak, Paul replied, because I know you have been a judge of this nation for many years, I'm glad to offer my defense in what concerns me. You are able to determine that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. They didn't find me disputing with anyone or causing a disturbance among the crowd, either in the temple complex or in the synagogues or anywhere in the city. Neither can they provide evidence to you of what they now bring against me. So you get what he's saying, right? He's saying, my accusers are not telling the truth. I've not done anything wrong. And then after he says, there's no evidence that I've done anything wrong, he then talks about what he believes. So he says, um, neither can they provide evidence of what you now bring against me, but I confess this to you. Now notice what he believes. He says, I worship my father's God according to the way. Now that's important. What does the word way mean? In this case, way means Christianity. Way was the name for Christianity before Christianity was a word, okay? Back before Christianity was called Christianity, it was called the way. So he says, um, I, um, I worship my father's God according to the way, which they call a sect, believing all the things that are written in the law and in the prophets. Now, this is the part I really want you to pay attention to. He says, I have a hope in God, which these men themselves also accept, that there is going to be a, what? A resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, that's interesting. I want you to notice that last sentence. Paul says that he has a hope in God, right? Which is the kind of thing sometimes we say. But what's interesting is Paul's hope in God was not that his spirit was gonna go to heaven, right? His hope in this passage is described as a resurrection. And he's not talking about Jesus's resurrection here because that had already happened and he's talking about something in the future, okay? Paul did believe in Jesus's resurrection, certainly. In fact, Jesus's resurrection is why this, he, probably why he really believed in this resurrection, um, you know, that's one reason that they're all connected. But he's not saying my hope is the resurrection of Jesus. He's saying I have this hope in God that there is going to be a resurrection in the future, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. I assume the, the, the righteous to reward and the unrighteous to, to punishment. And so he says, this is, this is what I believe. Um, now I admit, he, it's, it's just so interesting. I have a hope in God, the resurrection. It's just not the way we talk. But that's what he says. So the word resurrection here, if we didn't have any other Bible verses on this topic, I think we could assume that maybe the word could mean, the word resurrection could be a word that's used to describe a spirit going to heaven or hell. But I don't think that's the way he means it. And it doesn't match the use of the word in other places, like when Jesus's physical body came out of the tomb, right? That's a resurrection. And that was someone, not, not just a spirit going somewhere, that's a body coming back to life. The other thing I want you to notice in this passage is, he says, I have a hope in God, which these men themselves also accept. 
So he's saying to the judge here, this is my belief. My hope is that there's a resurrection. And this is not some weird belief that's unique to me. Lots of Jewish people believe this. We believe there's a resurrection coming, okay? Lots of Jewish people. This is not something I made up. In fact, the people who are accusing me believe that there's a resurrection to come, okay? Lots of Jewish people believe this. So that's important for understanding the next verse. Let's go now to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, verses 21 through 24. The context here is Jesus shows up at a funeral. I mean, it's not exactly a funeral. The guy was uh, buried about four days before this incident, but it's, they buried people, I think, pretty fast back then. And then you would have a time where the family all gets together and grieves after the burial. And so this is, I think, four days after the burial. And so the guy who died's name is Lazarus. The guy who died's sister's name is Martha. So she's still alive and she's sad because her brother died. Jesus is a friend of the family and he shows up. And this is the conversation that they have. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died, right? So the thing was, before Lazarus died, he was sick, right? And there was a point where he was so sick that they're like, oh, I don't know if he's going to make it. And they were hoping like, oh, I hope Jesus gets here before he dies so that he can heal him and everything will be fine. And Jesus got there too late. Jesus showed up and the guy's already dead. And so she said, oh man, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then she says, yet even now I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Then Jesus speaks back to her and says, your brother will rise again, right? Now, what does she say back? This is, this is fascinating to me. He says, your brother, will, your brother will rise again. And Martha says back, I know. Did you notice that? She says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Sometimes we read the story and just blow right past that. But Jesus said, your brother's gonna rise again. And Martha did not go, oh, really? That's what you're gonna do? Like she said, I know. I know there's a resurrection day coming for those of us who believe in the true God. So I just want you to notice, she believed in a resurrection to come. Why did she believe in that? Because lots of Jewish people believed that at the time. Now, Jesus raised Lazarus to life that day, but he never corrected her beliefs on that. Like he never said she was wrong about that. And you wanna know why? I think it's because he believed it too. Okay, so we've seen what, what Paul said about this. We've seen what Martha has to say about it. Let's look and see what Peter has to say about this. Okay, the Apostle Peter. This is Acts chapter three, verses 17 through 21. This is a sermon of Peter's, and this is what he says. He says, and now, brothers, I know that you did it in ignorance, just as your leaders also did. Anybody know what the did it is? Anybody know? Yeah, crucifixion, okay? You guys killed Jesus. That's what he's saying. I re- like, you guys just killed Jesus, and I realize you did it in ignorance. Like, you did not realize exactly who it was you were killing. Okay, I know that you did it in ignorance, just as your leaders also did. But what God predicted through the mouth of all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer, he has fulfilled in this way. So he's saying, you all killed the Messiah. Now there was a prophecy that the Messiah would, be, would suffer. So you all were a part of making that prophecy happen, okay? So then he says, therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. Now this sounds like, sounds like how Christians talk, right? You all killed the Messiah, not good, okay? You guys are on the bad, bad side of this. So you need to repent and turn back. You need to stop saying you need to believe in Jesus rather than rejecting him. You have to turn away from your sins so that your sins may be wiped out. We say stuff like this, right? Repent and turn back. So we would would more likely say, so your sins may be forgiven, but it's the same thing, right? But what's interesting is, what does he go on to say? Our gospel presentations typically are repent and turn back so that your sins will be wiped out so that your spirit will go to heaven when you die. Not what Peter was thinking about. Look what he says. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. No reference to you going to the presence of the Lord, but that 
coming from the presence of the Lord would be seasons of refreshing. And he may send Jesus. Where's Jesus? Who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. Heaven must welcome him. Okay, so he's in heaven. Heaven must welcome him until the times of the restoration of all things. So Peter's saying that Jesus is in heaven and he needs to, get, he needs to send here. So you need to believe. You need your sins to be wiped out so that when he shows up, there are seasons of refreshing. So that when he shows up, this is that you are part of the restoration of all things. So it's just interesting to me that Peter's gospel presentation is a lot different than ours. There are some similarities between his gospel presentation and ours, but there's some differences. The similarities are repent, believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, right? The difference is he says, so that Jesus will come here for restoration and refreshment. That's very different than what we say. That's very different than what I grew up with. Now let's look at Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight is written by Paul and look what he says here in verse 18. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. That's a very famous verse. And it seems to me most of the time it's quoted, people are talking, seem to be using it to talk about heaven. I consider that the sufferings of this present time, okay, right, and in this, this bodily life, there's suffering, it's bad, but it's not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. When? When our disembodied spirit goes to the spirit in the sky, right? But if you keep reading, that's not what he's talking about. He says, I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. And the next thing he talks about is not heaven, it's earth. He says, for the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. Okay? The word creation here is referring to this world that we're in right now. You can tell as the passage unfolds, you can tell that's the way he's using the word creation to mean our world. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation. The, the, the world is waiting for something to happen. What? For God's sons to be revealed. What is that? I think it's related to something later on that he says about being adopted. Okay, for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility. When was the creation, the world that we're in, when was it subjected to futility? Anybody know? Yeah, the fall, Adam and Eve, right? You remember that story? Adam and Eve sinned, and then there was a curse on the earth. There was a fall. There was decay. There was all, I mean, there had never been death and hardship and pain, and suddenly there was. So if you think back on that story, it's very interesting. Adam sinned, and then there was a curse placed on Adam, right? And Eve sinned, and there was a curse placed on Eve. And then the earth did nothing and got cursed. Do you remember that? Like Adam got cursed, Eve got cursed, and the, and the earth got cursed. And so the earth is sitting there going like, what did we do? You know what I mean? Like, I get them, but what did we do? That we have to be involved in corruption and decay and all these problems for, forever, right? Now, the word, you can see the word creation here is being like personified, just like I'm personifying it, right? The creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's son to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility. Like there was a curse placed upon it, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, look at this, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of corruption and into the glorious freedom of God's children. The creation is hoping that one day it will also be set free at the same time someone or something else is set free. The creation is hoping that one day when the curse is lifted from humanity, when God undoes all that went wrong during the time period of Adam and Eve, one day when the curse is lifted from human beings, the creation is hoping to get in on that, to be set free at the same time from the bondage of corruption and into the glorious freedom of God's children. And so it, it keeps going. Um, 
For we know, this is verse 22, that the whole creation, again, this is personification here, the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. The whole world has been going, oh, how much longer? How much longer do we have to be cursed? And not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits. Spirit, I think here is referring to the Holy Spirit. First fruits is the very first fruit or vegetable that comes on a plant. So if you have a tomato plant and a tomato shows up one day, that's how you know the tomato plant is healthy and more tomatoes are gonna come later. And so similarly, we have the Holy Spirit, which shows us there is something even more to come. We have the Spirit as the first fruits. And we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting, what are we waiting for? For adoption, and then how is it described? The redemption of our, what's the word? Bodies, that's interesting. Not even redemption of our souls. We are eagerly waiting for the redemption of our bodies. So I want you to notice in this passage, the thing that we are waiting for is not to go somewhere else. We're waiting for the redemption of our bodies here, which sounds a lot like resurrection. And notice that the redemption in this passage is not only for bodies, but it is for the whole creation, which sounds a lot like what Peter was talking about when he said, the restoration of all things. There's so much of this. Let's keep going. Philippians chapter three. Some of these verses are actually very famous and you're gonna be like, wow, I've read that before, but I've never really thought of it that way. Like, we, there's so many times we just kind of blow through these verses without thinking what they mean. But I want you to notice, Philippians chapter three, verse 20 and 21. It says, but our citizenship is in heaven. That's a little phrase that I've heard a lot. Christians quote that a lot. And again, typically it's, it's something like, um, heaven is my true home. This world is not my home. I'm a citizen of heaven. So here I am, not home. And my true home is, is up there, spiritual world in, in the sky. And so I'm just waiting to go to my true home, right? Our citizenship is in heaven. What's weird is, if you keep reading the verse, that's not what he's talking about, right? It's not, but our citizenship is in heaven where we will go one day. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a savior, Okay? I'm not saying that when you die, you don't go to heaven. I do believe that a, spirit, a person that believes in Jesus, their spirit goes to heaven when they die. I'm just saying, that's not the point of this verse. Heaven is brought up here um, not to talk about a place we are going. The reason heaven is brought up here is to say that it's the place Jesus is coming from on the way here. On the way here to do what? What's he gonna do when he gets here? According to the passage, he will transform our bodies. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So this verse says, our citizenship's in heaven where Jesus is coming from. So he's gonna come from there to where? Here, and he's gonna do what? He's gonna transform our bodies. That's what it says he's gonna do. Transform our bodies into what? That sounds weird. Transform my body into what? Into being like his body. Okay, what was his body like? Resurrected. Do you remember the Easter story? resurrected in a body that was never able to die again. So this is another reference to a resurrection happening here on earth. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 50. Brothers, I tell you this, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So, so Paul's here talking, and I think when he says flesh and blood, he is referring to our bodies as they currently are. Okay? Our flesh and blood bodies that we have right now cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We cannot enter into God's kingdom with bodies that are capable of aching and hurting and pain and disease and death. We can't go into God's eternal kingdom with bodies that do that, right? 
I tell you, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God and corruption cannot inherit incorruption. So what's gonna happen? Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep. I think that's a reference to death. It's a euphemism. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised. What? Look at this. And the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. So he's saying there's coming a day where we can't get in with bodies like this. So what's going to happen? Jesus is going to come back. That's got to be the reference of the trumpet. There's a thing that's happening and it happens in a moment, in the blink of an eye. This is not like some long drawn out process. There's like an event that's going to happen, right? The return of Jesus Christ, the trumpet blasts, and something's going to happen. What's going to happen in that moment? The dead will be raised and not just raised, raised incorruptible. So not coming back as zombies, right? Incorruptible, coming back in perfect bodies that can't die the next time around. And then it says, and we will be changed. Now that's weird. So the dead will be raised, but we will be changed. What does that mean? I think what this is, is the we will be changed is a reference to the people who are still alive. Because remember, we will not all fall asleep. We will all be changed. That the people who are alive. So in other words, here's the earth. Jesus comes back. There are people who have died, right? Millions of people who have died, okay? Plenty of them believed in Jesus. So there are people who will be raised with a new body that cannot die, but then there's gonna be people who are already alive. What's gonna happen to them, right? Well, I think this passage says they're gonna be changed. In other words, God doesn't have to kill them in order to resurrect them. If they happen to be alive at the time of his return, then the dead ones can be brought back to life incorruptible, and the non-dead ones can just be changed into people who have incorruptible bodies, which is what he describes in the next section. He says, for this corruptible, this is verse 53, same chapter, this is the next sentence, for this corruptible, meaning our bodies that break down, must be clothed with incorruptibility. And this mortal, that means ability to die, must be clothed with immortality. That means cannot die. And when this corruptible is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Like in a moment, dead people will be raised, alive people will be transformed into people who cannot die, and when that happens, death will have been swallowed up in victory. Which means when people die nowadays, like if somebody were to die this afternoon, okay, and their spirit goes to heaven, which I've already said, I believe in that, that is not the moment that death is swallowed up in victory. No, that, that, people are still going to die after that happens. No, we're still waiting on the day when death is no more and it is swallowed up in victory. We're waiting for the resurrection. Okay, final passage, Revelation chapter 21. We'll go to the last couple of pages of the Bible. Revelation 21, this is fascinating. This is John, and John is, this is clearly a vision of the future. As I read it, you'll be able to see that this is a vision of the future. And look what he says. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new, what? Earth. Now that's big because I'm about to read the rest of this. And most of the stuff I'm about to read is all stuff that if you've been in church for a while, you've heard and everyone said it's stuff about heaven. But I just want you to notice the topic sentence of the paragraph begins with a new heaven and a new earth. This is not simply talking about heaven. This is talking about a new earth. And from what I can understand, I think this is a renewed earth is what this is talking about. I mean, I suppose it's possible that God will literally like destroy the earth and make a whole new one from scratch. But based on the other passages that I read to you and other places in the Bible, it seems to me that new earth here doesn't necessarily mean start all over again, but a renewed, completely changed, very different new earth. 
So I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea no longer existed. So very different. This is a huge change. And I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming, what's the word? Down, that's gonna be important. Out of where? Heaven. From God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. So there's this heavenly city and it's coming down out of heaven. So the vision that we're seeing here of of how things are gonna be with the new heaven and the new earth, what vantage point is the vision given from? Earth, yes. He's, he's, the, the vision is from earth because heaven is up and, there, and heaven, or at least a part of it, is coming down to earth. Do you see that? Okay, so the holy city, the new Jerusalem, is coming out of heaven and it's coming down to earth. So, what am I, so then he says, then I heard, and so I just want you to notice, heaven, or at least part of it, is coming down to earth and then we have these words. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. So this loud voice and this thing that's about to be described is happening where? Heaven or earth? Earth, right? So we just watched it come out of heaven onto earth, and now this is what is heard. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I have heard that quoted so many times, and it seems like most of the time you hear it is one day when somebody, you know, when somebody dies and then they go to heaven, right? Their spirit's in heaven, and somehow God wipes spiritual tears out of their spiritual eyes, right? That's the way it's always kind of been, right? You go to heaven, that's, where, that's not what it's talking about. They're on earth, and the holy city comes down, and God is with his people, and the people are with their God, and he will, in that place, wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. It used to exist on earth. It will not exist on this earth. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. And then the one who's seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And he also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. The description of God living with his people forever in perfection in the Bible is a place that looks up to heaven. Now, I have to admit, at this point, maybe we're splitting hairs because the gist of the whole passage seems to be that at this point, heaven and earth are basically combining. And you could say that the place where people who trust in Jesus are gonna live forever, you could just call it one place, the new heaven and the new earth. And that's pretty much most of the sermon. Um, The reason that I showed you so many verses, because you might go, yeah, goodness, this sermon, you just did Bible verse after Bible verse after Bible verse after Bible verse. Yeah, I did. And that's because I did not want you to think that this is some crazy interpretation based on me, like misreading a passage or two. No, this is all over the Bible. And this is like in line with historic Christianity. You can look at like different denominations and look at what they believe historically going back to the 1800s and even before that. And you'll see like, this is what, this is what Christians have believed for a long time. You can go back to the fifth century. Okay, fifth century was a long time ago. And there was something that came out in the fifth century called the Apostles' Creed. Did any of you grow up in a church that recited the Apostles' Creed? Yeah, so this is old Christian doctrine, okay? This is a long time ago. Fifth century, the Apostles' Creed. And those of you who grew up saying it, I'm assuming some of you did, because I mean, lots of churches, you know, the Catholics recite it, Presbyterians recite it. It's a very common like, thing that Christians say as their doctrine. And if you know it, you remember from when you were a kid, it's a bunch of I believe statements, right? I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in the Son. And when you get to the last three I believe statements, do you remember what they were? It ends this way. I believe in what? The forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. 
I mean, they knew what was up back in the fifth century, right? They believed in the forgiveness of sins, the, and our spirits all go to heaven when we die. No, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. This is, this is Christianity. Many people in my generation somehow missed the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting and the re- restoration of all things. But it is glorious. God made us for physical body life. Do you realize that? Like that's probably one of the reasons why you don't want to go be a ghost, right? God made us for body life. Remember, God made Adam and Eve as physical beings in a physical world that couldn't die. Remember that? That was his intention. Physical beings in bodies that can't die. That was his intention for the world. And it still is. And so I look back at my childhood and I think about the Bible and it's just interesting because it seems to me the Bible, first of all, has a lot to say about what we are supposed to do. Like repent of your sins, trust in Jesus so that you'll be, you know, receive forgiveness of your sins. And the Bible has a little bit to say about the intermediate state. Not a lot, but, and by intermediate state, I mean what would happen to someone if they died before Jesus returned, okay? The Bible says a little bit about the intermediate state, enough that I would say, I think it's clear that you, the, the spirit goes to either heaven or hell when they die. And then there's all these glorious verses about eternity. And it's just interesting because when I look back at my childhood, I feel like I got taught a lot about what our job was. You gotta repent and believe in Jesus and receive forgiveness of sins, which is good, that's important. We need to make that clear. And I feel like I even got taught a lot about the intermediate state and then nothing about eternity. I mean, so little that I thought the intermediate state was eternity. And so I hope that learning this blesses you and encourages you as it has me. Because... The good news is even better than some of you thought it was. God isn't just giving our ghost an alternative to hell. He's going to fix the whole world. That is good news. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this and we praise you for it. And some of us, this is a reminder And it's good to be reminded of your good, great news. And for some of us, it's like, whoa, this is not what I've ever heard. But for some of us, this is much more exciting than what we've ever heard. And for some of us today, we will right now get the opportunity to worship you for a new thing we didn't know about you. And so I pray that you would inhabit the praises of your people. And I pray that this would be a great time for some of us to worship you for some things for the very first time, now that we're understanding it. I pray that if there are any people here who do not yet know you, that they would go like, oh, I think I am understanding this better. And in fact, I pray that there would be people who would repent, just like Peter said, that they would repent of what they've done, turn back so that their sins would be wiped out, so that they would not be placed in some lake of fire, but that they would be on the new heavens and new earth forever with you. I pray that there would be people who would come to know you so that they will be the resurrected people, like the good kind of resurrection. I think the unrighteous are gonna be resurrected too, but it doesn't sound like theirs is gonna be so good. And so I pray... For people here who do not know you, I pray that they would come to know you even today, that they would trust in you, that they would say, wow, I I guess God, heaven, hell, I'd heard this stuff before. It sounded okay, I suppose. But maybe there's something different about getting the whole truth. For me, it was a big deal. Man, I'm so excited that you allowed me to learn this. And so I, I thank you for the opportunity to teach at these people. And so wherever we are in our journey, I mean, some of us have lost loved ones. Some of us are fearful of our own death. Some of us have imagined heaven and hell and sort of dreaded both. 
some of us that don't know, you know, don't know much at all, and we're just taking it all in. But I just pray that by the power of your word in our minds and the power of your spirit in our hearts, you would use this to turn us into the kind of people you want us to be and that we'd have the kind of relationship we should have with you. And I just especially pray with excitement that we as a congregation right now can sing to you for something really great that you have done and are doing and going to do and maybe some of us praising you for that for the very first time. It's very exciting. We love you, Jesus. Amen.